Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 43 of the Lawyerist podcast, where we talk with Peter Carianis about why his small firm is one of the most innovative law firms in North America. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or using your favorite podcast app. Uh, soon we will be on Google Play as well. You can check in every week at lawyerist.com slash podcast as well. And if you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to give us a rating in iTunes or as soon as it pops up in Google Play, a rating in there. And take a minute to check out our practical and easy to use lawyering survival guides at lawyerist.com slash guides, including our brand new 30 minute WordPress setup guide. You can also just click on guides at the top of the site. Use the coupon code PODCAST to get a 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word PODCAST into the checkout form. Today's podcast is sponsored once again by Ruby Receptionists. You are more productive when you aren't interrupted, and Ruby can help with that by answering your phones. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to give Ruby a try. So Aaron, today I want to talk briefly about an article that got posted up on BuzzFeed, and the title is, You Probably Can't Encrypt Anything, Can You? And the brief summary is that uh, in a study, uh, 10 pairs of people were given 45 minutes to encrypt, send, decrypt, and read a message uh, via a tool called Mailvelope, which is supposed to be one of the easier ways to do encrypted email communications. And only one of the people were able to do it, and it took them the full 45 minutes, and they had some previous experience with PGP encryption, which is what Mailvelope uses. Um, So, you know, speaking of wasting time, if it takes you 45 minutes to send and receive a single email, um, we've got problems. Yes. Although, (laughs) like, are these 10 random pairs of people? Because, like, just for instance, I was at a CLE the other day, and a woman was having trouble finding the private downloadable documents. And so I went over to her computer, and she was typing the URL into Google, and Google was showing her no results, and therefore she couldn't <laughs> find the private download link because Google had no results for the URL she had typed into Google. God, lawyers! <laughs> it just drives me crazy. Um So, like, if you randomly grab 10 people and say, follow these instructions to encrypt and decrypt an email, I think you've already lost. Well, and there was an article from the um, sort of the guy in charge of security technology at the Electronic Frontier Foundation who began the conversation between Ed Snowden and Laura Poitras, and even he screwed it up for the first few exchanges of emails, and he was talking about... Email encryption is actually so hard yeah. that experts like him can't get it right. right. So on the flip side, like it, email encryption just is really hard to use. And um, even with simple tools, which I, I've been saying this the whole time, but uh, my beef with the title is that uh, contrary to email encryption, encrypting your hard drive is three clicks. And so right. I, I kind of felt like I wanted to point out that email encryption, hard, 
um, full disk encryption, um, basic security, um, and even using encryption with uh, with your internet connection and so you're browsing websites securely. All that stuff is really dead simple. It's just email kind of stands out as being a giant pain in the ass. Right. So don't use this as a cop out, um, but don't feel <laughs> bad. <laughs> and and this is why I keep telling people like don't bother trying to learn to encrypt your email. It's just it's not worth it. It's there's no way that our professional obligation includes being an internationally renowned security expert, which is apparently not even sufficient to to communicate securely over email. Presumably, though, someone will eventually invent email encryption that is functional. I, presumably, but I, I think secure portals, which I've written about on Lawyerist, are really the answer. And I think lawyers ought to have them. I think you ought to have clients log into your portal, whether it's my case or Clio or um, you know whatever up and comer. There are a couple of communication focused ones like Virtru. Um, you know, have have your clients communicate securely with you that way, and just. Forget about email. I mean, un- until email is adequate for this purpose, just use something else. And I think secure portals are a really pretty elegant solution. Although I'm reminded uh, at, at a recent conference, um, uh, a merchant processor told me that the number one support request they get, you'll never guess, Aaron. What do you think it is? Um, I don't know. People who can't remember their password. Sure. And are angry about it. Mm-hmm. What <laughs> and, is my password? And like, I just, so I just want to make sure that everybody's aware that everywhere that you can log into has something, a link right on the login form that will say something like forgot password question mark or reset password. And you can just go ahead and reset or your, change your password right there. Um, in fact, a really lazy way to do um, two-factor authentication is to just forget your passwords and use the forgot password reset thing every time. <laughs> reset your password every time. Right? That's effectively two-factor authentication. Uh, except that you're not using the one factor of your password. Uh, yeah, that, I guess that's true. It's I guess it's one. It's a different factor authentication. It's your email address instead of your... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but that I, I actually do that sometimes because for sites that I don't think I probably need to use the password more than once a year, I'm too lazy to even put it in my password manager. That's so, lazy. Yeah. All right. So uh, don't bother trying to encrypt your email. It's impossible. Nobody can do it. Um, encrypt everything else. It's easy and everybody should do it. Use a secure client portal. Are those the right, bullet that's points? That's the moral of the story. Fantastic. And here's my conversation with Peter. Hi, my name is Peter Karianis, and I am the president and founder of Conduit Law, a law firm based in Toronto, Canada. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. And uh, one of the reasons we're talking is because we met at the Clio Cloud Conference recently, uh, and we were talking about your firm's um, has been recognized for being one of the most innovative lawyers in North America, or innovative law firms in North America, right? 
Uh, that's true. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, for mentioning that. I mean, we're we're working hard to try to to bring innovation to our practice. But uh, we did meet in Chicago at the Clio conference, which, quite frankly, was uh, a really exciting place to be at because it was one of those environments where everybody is looking to uh, to improve their practice, enhance their practice, uh, find an innovative solution all around the client experience. So yeah, Chicago and Clio is a good spot to be. So I, I think the first question I asked you uh, when I I heard that your firm had been recognized, um, and and you, I think you you ha- you hastened to say that you were came in second place for the Innovative Law Firm Award, right? That's true. But you've been shortlisted again this year, so maybe maybe it'll happen. Um, <laughs> but I, I think the first question that I asked is, okay, so what's so innovative about your firm? So what's so innovative about your firm? Well, let's talk a little bit about our, our approach uh, and, and what we're doing. You know, first and foremost, uh, we have a, a narrow focus as a business law firm. What we do is we work by embedding our corporate lawyers as on-demand in-house counsel, and we wrap that around a fixed-fee approach. Now, in and of itself, that to some people may not sound particularly innovative, but it's being received in the marketplace as being a very client-centric and client-driven approach to the delivery of legal services. So are these, uh, how big are these companies that you're working for? Uh, we, our client range, our client uh, portfolio ranges from Fortune 500s, mm-hmm. uh, and those would be some nationally recognized brands, uh, household names that everybody would know, including some financial institutions, uh, some in the uh, aviation space. Uh, through to publicly traded companies, uh, primarily on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, and then we also work with some small to mid-sized enterprises, uh, typically that have reached a certain level of maturity in their own business cycle that they can really take advantage of having this on-site, on-demand, flexible business law solution. So you're sort of uh, doing independent contract lawyers, and I imagine part-time to full-time, depending on what the needs are. That's right. That's one way to look at it. So our engagements uh, depend on what the clients are looking for. Some of them, some clients will say, well, you know, I really could use an in-house lawyer, but I don't have enough work for five days a week, 52 weeks of the year. But it'd be great if someone was here once a week. Mm-hmm. open-ended contract. And they can participate in the water cooler conversations. They can participate in management meetings. Uh, they can really become part of the, the business. And that allows us to be uh, a lot more proactive, frankly, as opposed to reactive for their own corporate needs. And uh, some of our other clients, particularly ones with the big in-house departments, they may come to us and say, uh, you know, Peter, we have this project that's happening. We have a transaction. We have a deal. We have some something big that's going to tax our HR capacity for a period of time. Can you help us out? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we offer is that solution wrapped around a law firm. So we are a corporate law firm. We have a number of lawyers practicing. Uh, we're able to spell each other off. We re- represent a number of different disciplines, and we work in teams. And and that's what what our clients have uh, have recognized and what they typically appreciate. So I see eleven names on your website. Are those the only lawyers working at Conduit, or or do you bring on other people as needed? Well, no, it's other people's as needed. And I have to confess on, on that side, we're, we're now actually approaching 20 people okay. active in the roster. And, uh, and, and that's an interesting point you raise. A number of firms that are in our kind of space will, will talk about different sizes depending on, on, on what they, what they're offering to their clients. Some of them will advertise, if you will, their full roster. We have 450 lawyers, but really what they're saying is they, they have a, a broad and enhanced network around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, really like to only talk about the number of lawyers who are active 
uh, who who got up this morning, who are working on files and working with clients. Uh, but to be quite honest, we're always our website is always chasing reality because uh, gotcha. we're always trying to get, and people will recognize this probably listening in, trying to organize headshots and bios and uploading it and getting your LinkedIn profile. So that's uh, that's not a static page. It's always being updated and, and lawyers are coming and going into that. So it sounds like uh, a lot of the time your lawyers are not working in out of the same office. Um, so how do you keep everybody in? T- I mean, how, how do you function as a firm and keep everybody in touch about what you're working on and, and all that kind of stuff? Well, that's a great question uh, and actually brings us back to the intro. So Clio is a big part of that. Uh, what we're working on here is kind of a hub and spoke design of a law firm. We have an office in downtown Toronto. Uh, we're on a King Street location. We're actually very fortunate. We're in a in a late 19th century warehouse, so we get to live hmm. that kind of brick and beam uh, startup environment. And it's an open concept office. The office is not big enough for us to accommodate all the lawyers if everybody was to show up at the same time. Uh, because what what we like to say, and what this is a, the reality of our work, on any given week, our lawyers will work uh, on site with the client. Uh, here at our office location and, and or from home. And in a given week, they may work from all three of those locations. But what we do in order to make sure there's a team is Monday morning, we have team meetings across the entire firm that are organized by client. So, you know, one of the differences in the way we organize our, our firm, we don't organize by practice area, which is often traditional. You sort of have the banking lawyers or the insolvency mm-hmm. lawyers, the corporate lawyers, and they meet as a group. Uh, we meet as a client-facing team with the lawyer who has principal responsibility for that client taking the the lead on that meeting and the lawyers who are brought in maybe for some support work, let's say it's IP or employment or whatever the case may be, participating as needed. That happens every Monday. And then on a monthly basis, we have team meetings with, uh, and those, those, are, those are phone calls on Mondays, but uh, on a monthly basis, we have team meetings uh, where the entire firm shows up here at the office. We rearrange the desks if we need to. And uh, those are full agendas. We talk about everything that's ongoing. We also include a uh, CLE component uh, to all of our monthly meetings. And then we also do an annual retreat. So what we really tried to do around that is to make sure that all of our lawyers are working together collaboratively, that they're working in a way that makes sense for the delivery of a service to the client not just the delivery of an abstract legal service in a discipline, uh, and that there's enough time where they have an ability to interact with one another just on a lawyer-to-lawyer, person-to-person, human basis uh, to develop contacts, to develop connections, to develop professional friendships so that they can better service the clients. So you're not focused on fancy tools. It's on, you're not using Slack to communicate. You're using the telephone and email, basically. Well, we have Slack, and we've used Slack for some of our non- uh, law firm facing projects. Uh, and in fact, I am a huge supporter of Slack. Uh, I love it. I, it's probably one of the apps that I use the most uh, for the non-law firm facing work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, primarily it's email, it's telephone, it's in-person meetings, and then using a service like Clio to be able to bring it all together. Gotcha. So it, it sounds like the innovation is mostly in the way that you serve clients. You're not using technology in the way that you ex- you might expect when the word innovation comes up um it's it's for you it's mostly a sort of a business model client service model innovation yeah i'd say that's it you know in law school we learn about the attorney client relationship yep <laughs> uh, and and i actively flip it here at the office it's called the client attorney relationship mm-hmm. 
Uh, I think there's something there's almost sort of subversive about putting the attorney first in the relationship. Uh, I like to turn that on its head. And and much of what we're doing is really around the service. It's not necessarily around software. Like we try to take advantage of the best software that we can use and that's scalable and that makes sense. Uh, but I, I don't want to put um, high tech and IT uh, on some kind of a pedestal in the law firm and say that's the solution. A lot of what we do now is enabled entirely by technology. Let's be clear. 20 years ago, we wouldn't really be able to create this kind of a dispersed law firm uh, because we'd all be walking around with fax machines under our arms looking for somewhere to plug them into the wall. So being able to use uh, our mobile devices, laptops, connectivity, Wi-Fi, all of that facilitates what we're doing. But fundamentally, it still facilitates this client attorney relationship. It's, it's kind of like the, the, the boring technology is what makes it work. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, I mean, what's, what has changed? I mean, I guess I was going to ask you, you know, why couldn't you have done this years ago and, and maybe because the communication tools weren't quite good enough, but it, but it does seem to me that, you know, doctors were visiting homes decades ago um, instead of making everybody come to their offices. Oh, it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is essentially making house calls to your clients. Um, you know what what's changed what's changed in the legal marketplace that you think makes this um work now or why is it in demand now well that's an astute observation and it goes to the idea of uh, you know everything that's old is new again um i like to think that we're we're open to the ideas of bringing in best practices from other businesses and other industries and that's part of it i think at its fundamental though take away what we're doing and how we're doing it uh most fundamentally the issue here is broader social and economic changes that are happening and they're affecting not just the legal industry, but every industry. And, and I think that is why, uh, law firms in the legal industry are being confronted with this idea of being forced to innovate. We've got the millennials that are coming up and entering the workforce. Uh, they're not. Uh, interested in participating in the workforce in the way that generations before them, and they're not willing to make the same compromises. At the same time, the boomers will be leaving the management and ownership of law firms. That's going to make a change. I think more broadly, we've had some big shocks to the system in the last few years. The global economic crisis, people make references to that, but we can't uh, underestimate the impact of that and then the way those waves reverberated out. Uh, people as consumers, and this goes to the millennials as well, are much more willing to consume all services in a very different way and they have very different expectations of what they're going to get from their professionals. And the static, monolithic traditional and conventional law firm partnership uh, is is not very well suited to to being nimble and agile to find better ways to service those clients. It's interesting that you you have, I think, framed that um, in terms of you've got different people want different things on both sides of the client attorney relationship. I'm going to I'm going to adopt your ordering. Um it's not it's not just that the clients want different things. It's that the lawyers want different things, too. And so the law firm has to adapt to its own 
components as well as adapting to what the clients want. Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, I founded Conduit Law in 2012, but I've been doing this myself since 04. I used to work with one of the national firms in Canada that's 700 some odd lawyers with con- lawyers across the country from one end to the other. And when I left that firm in 2004, I started doing this on my own. I had one client that I worked on an embedded basis with them. I didn't even have that language at the time, but it was almost like being a freelance lawyer. And I don't mm-hmm. mind calling it that. Um, my mother may have called it a gypsy lifestyle as I was going from <laughs> client to client with, uh, with a Blackberry and a laptop. At that, that time, and I've told this story many times before, people would ask me what I was doing now that I'd left the firm. I'd describe it. Uh, to them with a zeal and a passion. I was excited about what I was doing. I had, I felt I had regained control of my practice and my days and my times. And, uh, I, when I'd walk away, they would quietly go to my, uh, well, she's my wife now, but they, my girlfriend at the time and slip her the, uh, name and number and a business card of the local headhunters. <laughs> and they'd say, you know, when, uh, when Peter sort of relaxes from this, uh, this high that he's on, uh, have him call so-and-so, uh, so he can get his career back on track. <laughs> and that was 04. Uh, and what part of what prompted me to launch Conduit Law was when you fast forward to 2009, 2010, uh, those same people that were slipping uh, business cards for headhunters to, to me indirectly were calling me up and saying, uh, can you meet me for a cup of coffee? Uh, but I don't want to meet you at the coffee shop in our building, so I don't want anybody to see me talking to you. Oh, I, you and, know, I had that experience a few times where uh, people, yeah, were didn't want to be seen talking to me about, like, because they were worried somebody might overhear that they were thinking about leaving the firm or going solo. And <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> <It's> weird. Right. <laughs> Very weird. And so I, you know, I was, I became uh, expert at meeting at the various coffee shops, <laughs> not in your building. Right. And, uh, and people would all, the conversations all started in the same way and they all got to the same place, which was, how do you do what you do? What do you use? How do you deal with the law society or the bar association? How do you deal with insurance? How do you price? What do you mean fixed fee? How'd you come up with that number? And over the, the course of a cup of coffee and on the back of a napkin, I would sort of plot it all out. And I realized at some point, that I'd had enough of those conversations that there had been a change in the mindset, uh, not just on the, um, that was really on the sort of the supply side, if you will, of the equation that mm-hmm. the lawyers were now willing to work uh, in this alternative way. And what happened on the demand side is that uh, my client's clients, if you will, would find out what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, what do you mean you're not the full-time general counsel here? Uh, you know, whenever I call you or email you, you always respond. I say, well, yeah, but one day a week I'm here, one day a week I'm there. And they would then look at me and there would this, this epiphany, this light bulb will go over their head. They say, are you telling me I could have a part-time general counsel on demand? <laughs> and I say, yeah. Can I hire you? And I'd say, no. <laughs> you can't hire me because it's a conflict of interest in that case, or or I didn't have the capacity because it was just me. I had no scale. And that's when I realized I had enough of those conversations on both sides that I realized that there was a growing demand to consume legal services in a different way. Uh, but on the and on the flip side, there was a growing interest of lawyers and professionals to deliver the services in a different way. They were just looking for an answer, and that's when I started to sort of survey the horizon and see what else was out there in the U.S., in the U.K., in Australia, in Canada. 
And, and that's what led me to this. But it was really about this change, this broader social change in the way we consume, this broader economic change in the way we're, in what we're willing to pay for and how we're willing to pay for it. And the relationship we expect to have with professional advisors like attorneys. So if you had to look at like one thing that makes this work, cause I'm, I'm trying to think about like, if I was going to run out and start this right now like what's the one thing that i have to change about the way if i'm a traditional you know i'm billing by the hour whether it's at a small firm or not kind of what what makes it all work as a, as, a, as a business model that's yeah, get rid of the billable hour start with the fixed fee that is an attention getter with the client it changes the conversation it really then focuses the discussion between the client and the attorney on what's valuable to that client, what they need, how they need it, and how you're ultimately going to deliver that. Uh, it, it is also something that differentiates us from the rest of the market, and it does so in a big way. 90% of our revenues are fixed fees. But it sounds like you would probably set those fees not on a project basis, but on a you want me one day a week, here's how much that costs per month? It varies. So uh, we have this broad umbrella of the alternative fee arrangement, and then we work inside of that deciding what they need. So sometimes it's for the project. Sometimes it's on a, frankly, a per diem basis. Uh, sometimes it's against the specific work. Uh, sometimes it's a menu of work where the client can pick and choose as we sort of unbundle the services, and they may only come to us for one part of the service. They may go to another service provider for something else. We've even teamed up with some big traditional firms where we've done a piece of the work. The traditional firm has done something else. What I tell my clients is, uh, regardless, I don't really care about the acronym. I don't really care about the name. I don't really care about the fancy idea behind it. What I care about is uh, transparency and consistency. I want to give them uh, budgetary consistency or budgetary certainty so that they know what their legal spend is going to be. And I want it to be transparent as to how we achieve that number. And so do and, you do you find that there's sort of like a client life cycle where they may start out um, with one or two projects and then they may bring you in for uh, a couple days a week or a day a week and they kind of grow and eventually they've got somebody full time or... We haven't had the experience where they've gone to somebody full-time. Uh, I think we'll graduate to that at some point. Uh, somebody is surely going to uh, make a job offer to one of my lawyers who's working on an on-demand basis, but mm -hmm. uh, but that hasn't happened yet. Uh, I, I kind of welcome the day when it does happen. Uh, it depends on our who our clients are. Our, our clients that have no internal in-house capacity, it's what you described. They, we may start uh, with a small project, a defined scope of work, and then graduate up as we get to know one another a little bit better. Uh, on the clients that are on the other end of the spectrum, the ones that are that have in-house departments, uh, the the life cycle is entirely different. Though they're they are uh, sophisticated and uh, sophisticated purchasers of legal services, they come into this conversation knowing what they want uh, and and asking me if we can provide it. So it, it just occurred to me, uh, you know, legal staffing companies have been advertising this sort of thing for years. What really differentiates you from a legal temp agency like Robert Half or um, Spherion or whatever they're called? Or Yeah, I think they all do a really good job. And, and I think they provide a valuable service to their clients. Our clients, what they focus on the fact is we are a law firm delivering the service in this way. So it's not a temp agency. We're not just sort of delivering resources against a um, some sort of a, a, a temporary 
issue within their department. Our clients are looking for a long-term relationship with a law firm that's working in a different model. Uh, they, they like how we organize our fees. They like that we go through scoping exercises before we pick up a pen and start working. Mm-hmm. Uh, they like the fact that it can, they can enjoy the benefits of confidentiality and privilege within the firm, which they would not be able to enjoy uh, using a temp agency. You're not, you're not just providing bodies. You're providing, you are a law firm that just works in a different location, basically. That's right. Yeah. We're, we are a law firm that is, we've stripped down. I like to feel that we, we are like to say that we've stripped out all unnecessary elements to the delivery of legal services. And we're really putting the lawyer front, uh, first and foremost. It sounds in like in front of the client. It sounds like work life balance is a piece of this too for the lawyers who work for you, um, and with you and probably you yourself. Um, is that, does that come out of this being a strong, a strong benefit to working at Conduit, or is that um, just sort of a side effect? Uh, I think it's I think it's both. Uh, now I'm careful on the work life balance. You know, there's a lot of people that will that kind of like to lead with the work life balance, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's problematic because clients aren't that really that interested in the work life <laughs> balance of their lawyer. Yeah, uh, and so I, I, I think that that's a uh, that's a chord that doesn't that that is dissonant with the client. Um, but what I will say is clients recognize, uh, cause they're people too, they're consumers as well, um, that, that sometimes having something that's flexible and adaptable works just as well for them. You know, I think, I don't think that conduit law, conduit law is not really designed to be a, uh, a start to finish from the beginning of your career and to your end of your career type of law firm. Hmm. It's designed to work for a point in time. Uh, when you're, you have the professional capability and maturity and experience to be able to work in the field and you're looking for that flexibility. Now, some of my lawyers, they want to work five days a week just with two or three or four different clients. So they're as, as busy, if you will, as any kind of a conventional lawyer. Some of my other lawyers, uh, might only want to work one or two days a week or they may only want to work, uh, half week in the mornings. And there's no reason why you can't match that kind of a lawyer with the client who's looking for that kind of a service. And, you know, there's a number of reasons why on the lifestyle basis, people uh, might be interested in that. You know, experts in work-life balance would would know about it. Our listeners probably understand this, but, you know, young children, elderly parents, uh, different interests, uh, different focuses. You don't have to be, you know... Working a hundred hours a week on the 47th floor of a downtown tower is not the only way to practice law. Right. <laughs> and uh, we embrace that with our, and we work well with clients who embrace that. So let me, um, that, that, that conversation there brought up uh, something to me that I'm always kind of curious about because I like sort of the nuts and bolts of how law firms work. And that's, um, how does, how is compensation calculated at the firm? Is it kind of an eat what you kill sort of thing? Is it, um, you know, percentage of, of the receipts or how, or does it vary? Yeah, typically it's a percentage. So the lawyers, the way we're structured, we have to be certain that we uh, keep ourselves inside the lines for the local bar association, our law society, as we would call it here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our lawyers are independent contractors. Uh, and consequently, we're on a fee sharing arrangement as between the lawyers and conduit law. Uh, they're, 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 you bring up the eat what you kill. 
there's definite incentives uh, for lawyers to be able to bring clients to conduit law. Uh, but we're very careful, and this might also distinguish us a little bit from a conventional practice. You know, I, I tell lawyers we don't we don't want every client that might walk up walk up to us or walk in the door. Uh, and and that's not because every client doesn't deserve a lawyer. They all deserve the right lawyer. So first and foremost, we're a B two B firm. We we do no um, retail B two C style work, so criminal work or residential real estate, wills and estates, family law. We just don't do that work. Uh, and so we make sure that we're disciplined around our marketing approach so that. You know, we don't attract that kind of work. Now, if some of it starts to come to us, we're very careful to take that client, treat them properly, treat them respectfully, and help them find the right lawyer. But we don't pretend we can do it or just take it on and say, well, it might turn into something else. Gotcha. Now, um, before we run out of time, I want to give you a chance to talk about the other thing that you're doing. And this is, I feel like... um, with solo and small firm lawyers, especially those who are thinking about the business of law, um, there's almost always something going on. And for you, it's an app. And I, I kind of mentioned it without mentioning your name in a post I did about the conference um, or during the the Clio Cloud conference, um, but I didn't mention your name. So um, so tell us, give us the, the elevator speech on what the app is and what it does and why it's awesome. Well, that's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, the other thing, this is, uh, uh, I found out that there's a name for the other thing. It's called your side hustle. I was nice. <laughs> read, I read that, I think, in a Fast Company or a Forbes article. I mean, it's uh, funny, like lots of solo lawyers have something else. You know, we just talked with Josh Campson, who has a, in a real estate investment company on the side. And I keep talking to lawyers who are building apps or who have these other business ideas. It's uh, may- maybe the freedom of a solo is to go and do other schemes. Well, I think that's it. I mean, and I think part of it is the freedom uh, to try other things. Uh, part of um, part of it might be self-selecting. Like once you've gotten into that entrepreneurial role, you start to feel the creative juices are flowing, and you want to try other things. So I, I'm a business lawyer. Uh, I'm not a criminal defense lawyer at all. And, and curiously, our stand-in app is aimed right squarely at criminal defense attorneys. So I was introduced to this scheduling problem that criminal defense attorneys the world over know, which is they are scheduled to be in one courthouse on a scheduled trial that was scheduled six months ago. And on their way there, they get a phone call from one of their other clients who has picked up and has a bail hearing or some other procedural non-substantive hearing in another courthouse across town. Mm-hmm. And I learned that the solution is an ad hoc, informal network of uh, friends and favors that is glued together by sticky notes and text messages. And so this this app's stand-in is basically you can, it's it's like um, Uber for. I mean, I hate describing. It. It's like Uber for what for you know whatever. But it's like Uber for lawyers. You that's right. When you need a lawyer, you dial up a lawyer, and um, if somebody is available, they can accept your pitch or your proposal and um, they will go into the scheduling hearing. That's exactly right. So uh, it, we're on uh, we're on iOS right now, available in the App Store. And the idea is you can't make it to a certain courthouse because of a scheduling conflict, whatever that conflict might be. You're able to uh, open up the app, tap a courthouse. It zooms right in. You can see who, which lawyers are in proximity to that courthouse in real time right now, because those would be the lawyers who would have the app and have the app on. And then you can tap on each of those lawyers. You can see their bios. You can see their background. Uh, and if you decide you want to hire one of them, 
through the app. You can contact them through the app. And then this is the big difference. They get paid through the app. We use Stripe as a third-party payment processor because, as I said, this happens already. We're not inventing a new behavior for criminal defense attorneys. They call each other and they share favors. But when we did our marketing research, we found out that they would actually prefer to get paid. <laughs> but these are small Shocking. appearances. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, but they're small appearances. They might only be there for five or 10 minutes. So, you know, what do you charge? 50 bucks, 25 bucks, 75 bucks. The friction of uh, going back to your office, generating an invoice, sending that invoice, and then waiting 30, 60, 90 days for someone to pay you 75 bucks for a quick stand in appearance. The friction was too high. So people would just trade the favors. But what we're able to do is you get payment same day by a credit card through the app. Hmm. And uh, once people found out that that friction disappears and that they can do these stand-in appearances and get paid, well, it's fantastic. So you could be going to the court anyhow on another matter. And just by virtue of the fact you're there, you might pick up a few more uh, appearances because you're there. Uh, you may be able to make sure that your client is properly served by a, by a lawyer you trust in another, uh, in another courthouse. If you're a young attorney and trying to break into the business, it's a great marketing tool because it shows you there and you're present. And, you know, we've brought in, you mentioned Uber. Well, you know, let's talk more generally about the sharing economy. It's not just about Uber. Uh, and this is part of the, one of those demographic shifts and the sociological shifts. Um, people use their mobile devices to consume all kinds of services. Uh, the, the analogy I often give or the example I often give is right now, as we're talking, there's somebody who's flipped open their uh, smartphone and they're booking a flight online uh, to fly to New York City where they're going to hop in an Uber that's going to take them to accommodations booked by... Airbnb, and they're going to get ready for a date they found on Tinder. And yeah, you know, my, my, I think when, when you first mentioned it to me, my reaction was more of a, I actually don't know anybody who regularly uses stand-ins, and, and maybe it's because, um, but it's my understanding that in other states, like in California, this happens all the time. People are always doing it. And so I think there may be a little bit of uh, sort of local, um, in some jurisdictions, this is going to be the kind of thing that people will use all the time, and in other jurisdictions, it won't. There's nothing that to me that says that this wouldn't work. Um, it's but it's a little bit about trusting strangers. I assume that you can rate your stand-ins through the app. Yeah. So there's an uh, there's a two-way rating system at the end of the transaction. Mm -hmm. uh, so both the stand-in, you know, in the way we talk about it, we talk about the lawyer and the stand-in, but you know, they'll both be lawyers uh, or maybe licensed paralegals, depending on what the matter might be. But just to keep the, the language straight, uh, the lawyer rates the stand-in, the stand-in rates the lawyer. It develops a rating system out of five stars on the system. We count the number of stand-in appearances you've done. There's a space for written reviews. So, you know, you can, it'll show, you know, Sam Glover's got a 4.5 out of five star rating. He's done 27 appearances and here's a number of reviews. I mean, you're very quickly going to wind up with people that you look at it and you can be like, that person's probably trustworthy. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I've heard, um, I've seen a couple of judges recommending this actually. So it's not, it's not crazy. 
Yeah, well, I, I'll tell you, I, 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 thanks for being, we're not totally crazy. Well, just, no, I, I just mean, in, because in my jurisdiction, this isn't, at least as far as I'm aware of, it's not a common thing. To me, when I heard it, I was like, what the heck is that? Why would anybody want that? Um, so to people who are in jurisdictions like mine, they might be like, what's the big deal? Like, I've seen judges recommending this already. So, um, so yeah, not, not crazy. <laughs> we were we were in the press when we first got on the app store and I got a cold call from a judge who looked me up and found me at my desk. And, uh, you know, clearly the judge wouldn't endorse us and I wouldn't ask that judge to endorse us. But uh, she said, I love it. This is a great idea. I can't tell you how often my my court schedule gets completely backed up because and then describe the scenario. And then at the end of the call, she said, every lawyer that shows up late in my courthouse, I'm going to make them download your app. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it very there certainly will be some varying practice. Um, you know, there's a number of factors here, uh, but the, you know, the lawyers we've talked to in Toronto, the lawyers we've, we're in, we're currently operational in the greater Toronto area, which is actually an agglomeration of a number of cities, as well as New York City, Detroit, Chicago, LA, and San Francisco. And we're strategic about those cities, but, you know, by way of example, in New York, we also included some adjacent counties in Connecticut and in, um, or sorry, in, in Connecticut and New Jersey. Because when we talked to our lawyers, they said, well, you know, sometimes I got a client or something, I got to go across the border to New Jersey and I need a lawyer in New Jersey. So mm -hmm. it's now it's jurisdictional. Uh, and so we said, okay, well then let's include those counties. Tell me what, what counties there are. Same thing with uh, Chicago. We actually go over the border into Wisconsin and to Indiana. And, you know, you could see uh, even maybe smaller markets but are, that are in that uh, tri-state area where people may need uh, to find trustworthy counsel over the border because they're not licensed to practice in that area. Well, very cool. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Um, I really enjoyed our talk and good luck with this year's Financial Times Innovative Lawyer Awards. Well, thank you very much, Sam. I really appreciate the opportunity. Love your work. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers. And I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try. And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. 
You can also subscribe to the Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.